Amen. So again, this morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. If you were with us last week, uh, Kevin took us through uh, chapter 17 where we saw Paul make his way into the city of Athens. And when he got to Athens, he shared the gospel with two different groups of philosophers. And if you didn't get a chance to hear that message last week, I just highly encourage you to go back and give that message a listen. Uh, it's on iTunes, Spotify, our church website. But uh, it ended up being just a great sermon on what it looks like to evangelize and share the gospel in sort of a postmodern, post-truth culture that we find ourselves in. Uh, that sermon that Paul gives is wildly helpful to us. So uh, definitely go back and give that a listen. Today, we're going to see Paul make his way from Athens to Corinth. In Acts 18, I'll start reading in verse 1. It says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. When Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia... The Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man was persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and on your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it and cause it to bear fruit. Amen. So I don't don't believe that every hill is necessarily worth dying on. Okay, I... I think there's a, I think that's biblical wisdom that we have, but I do think there are some hills worth dying on. And just so you understand and get to know me, all right, I, one of the hills that I'm going to die on is I firmly believe that Lord of the Rings is a cinematic and literary masterpiece, one of the greatest of all time, okay? Uh, that is a hill worth dying on. Uh, it is supported by verifiable facts. Um, so... Uh, if you if you know the story of Lord of the Rings, you've read the books or watched the movies, preferably the extended edition. All right, nobody cares uh, about the shorter versions. Uh, but if you know the story, you know that Lord of the Rings takes place in a mythical place called Middle Earth, right? And the story centers on this powerful ring that was forged by this dark lord named Sauron. And I've already lost some of you. I understand that, um, but. That would essentially, this ring allowed him to rule all of the other kingdoms of the world. 
And in the very beginning of the first movie, you see Sauron uh, defeated initially, and it's temporary, but his ring, this ring of power, passed down to several people throughout centuries until it ended up in a small village of hobbits, my kinfolk. Um, and, and, and one hobbit named Frodo Baggins unknowingly inherited this ring, and once he realized what the ring was, he was tasked with taking the ring back to Mordor where it was forged so that it and its original master could be permanently destroyed and Middle-earth could be saved. Now, this journey across Middle-earth took six months. And during that time, over the course of the books and movies, you see Frodo experience unimaginable exhaustion, hunger, thirst, homesickness, and despair in the face of what seemed to be an impossible mission. And when things seemed darkest, Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, consistently used one thing as a source of encouragement for him. And we're going to see here in the first point that he was really just kind of pulling a page out of God's playbook for when his people grow weary. And that's the state that we find the Apostle Paul in today. Today we're going to look at Paul's need for encouragement, his responsibility, and ultimately God's sovereignty. So let's begin here in verse 1. Verse 1, Luke tells us that Paul has left Athens and come to Corinth, and it was here that God had to speak to the Apostle Paul and encourage him so that he would continue on ministering. And we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul's letter back to the church at Corinth that he establishes here in Acts 18. He was at an all-time low when he arrived. He was in need of encouragement, but why? I think there are two reasons for this. First, if you think back through Paul's journey, and as we've gone through Acts, you might remember some of this, but if you think back with me, Paul began in Antioch. He went from there to Galatia where he strengthened the church. He then entered into Philippi, and he was hassled and ran out of town there. He arrived in Thessalonica where he faced intense persecution and had to flee for his life. Then a couple of weeks ago, we saw where he arrived in Berea, and he found noble Jews who were willing to hear him out and squared his message with the scriptures. And no sooner had he started to establish the church in Berea that then the Thessalonian Jews found him in Berea and ran him out of Berea so that he had to be smuggled out. And then Paul arrived in Athens alone and weary. And he witnessed to the philosophers there in the marketplace and saw some fruit but felt compelled to keep moving. And by the time Paul arrives in Corinth... He is, by his own admission in 1 Corinthians 2, with them in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Translation, Paul was wrung out physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And he was afraid. So that's one reason that Paul needed encouragement. He's had a rough stretch of ministry. But secondly, not only... Just what he was coming from meant that he needed encouragement, but it was also what he was walking in to. See, the city of Corinth would not have been a very encouraging place to ministers. The city of Corinth was located on an isthmus. I really practiced that word this week to make sure I got that right. Sort of natural land bridge that connected northern Greece and southern Greece. And it was only about five miles wide. And right smack in the middle of that sort of land bridge was the city of Corinth. And so because of their unique location, it became a very prominent city in Greece. See, traffic had to come by land across, uh, across this isthmus. Is, God, see, I did it again. Isthmus, all right. Uh, to get down to southern Greece or back over. So to travel from one end of Greece to the other, you had to go through Corinth. 
but also ships going from north to south. Rather than sail around southern Greece, they would dock and make port in Corinth. And one of two things would happen, right? These ships would show up in the harbor at Corinth, and either their cargo was unloaded and transported by prisoners of war across this five-mile stretch and loaded onto another bridge, or at times the ship itself was put on rollers and dragged five miles, all right? Uh, Now, if you're thinking, man, it would have made way more sense for them just to dig a canal, right? You just need to know, Nero tried that in 67 A.D., and they completed it in 1891. All right, so uh, there's a few challenges. took a little while. So the best they could do, the best they could do was just drag things across this five-mile stretch. And all of this made Corinth boom, right? It became a, a cosmopolitan city attracting tradespeople from all over the world. It was a center for entertainment, indulgence, drunkenness, and vice. It was the home to the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love and fertility. In this temple, uh, it's situated up on a high mountain in Corinth. And in this temple, there were over a thousand priestesses. We're going to use this word ministry loosely, but they had the ministry of prostitution. One pastor put it this way, if Athens glorified the mind, Corinth was a city that glorified the body. This was a depraved, sinful place. And if your mission, like Paul, was to take the message of Jesus to the world and establish churches to further that mission then this city would have been incredibly disheartening to you. And here we see Paul get some new friends and some old ones. We see Paul, this is ultimately right, this is what J.R. Tolkien brought alongside when Frodo was having these same moments in Lord of the Rings, right, these moments of despair and exhaustion. What kept him going was that at just the right time, right, when things seemed darkest, that's when a friend seemed to show up. And here, when things seem darkest for Paul, when he's at an all-time low, we see God bring friends to him. We first meet Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and wife who were tent makers like Paul, but most importantly, they were believers. And then we see Silas and Timothy, two of his old friends, come from Macedonia. And see, this isn't the only or even the primary encouragement that God gives to Paul in this passage, but it's very important for us to see that God was fully aware of Paul's weariness. And one of his answers to that was to send Paul friends. Paul had been given a difficult mission, and he needed community. When Paul was at his lowest, God gave him friendship. And the result is that we see Paul push forward with the mission. This brings us to our second point, which is Paul's responsibility. What exactly is his mission? We see in verses 4 through 5, it says, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. In verse 6, Luke then goes on to tell us that the Jews' response to Paul, which is pretty familiar at this point, they reviled him. They rejected the gospel message that he had. And how does Paul respond? It says that he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. And from now on I will go to the Gentiles. Three things here about Paul's response to them. First, Paul shook out his garments at them. It's not something very common that we do. 
We have other means of communicating our frustration with people today. Um, But this is reminiscent of Jesus' instructions to his disciples when he was sending them out two by two to do ministry in Matthew 10. Jesus said, And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet. And uh, when you leave that house or town. And so Paul shared the gospel with them repeatedly and they rejected it. And by his estimation, continuing to go to the Jews in Corinth would have been unprofitable and a waste of his time. Like casting pearls before swine. So he moves on to the Gentiles just as he had in Antioch. Now, it's important for us to see here that Paul moves on from the Jews to the Gentiles. But it's not because they rejected him or made him feel bad. Right? Paul had repeatedly shared the gospel, and it was the gospel they rejected, not just Paul. It's important for us to understand that. And second, he tells them that their blood is on their own heads, that he is innocent. Here, Paul is drawing from Ezekiel 33, 1-6, where God calls prophets his watchmen on the wall, who see the judgment of the Lord coming and sound the trumpet. See, in ancient kingdoms, right, the innermost part of the kingdom was typically surrounded by a large wall. And so what they would do is they would station watchmen on the wall. And so their their job was to, as their name might suggest, to watch, right? And if they saw a foreign force coming to invade the city, they would sound some kind of a horn to let people know outside of the city gates, like farmers out in the field, hey, something's coming. And then they would be responsible to run into the city gates for in a sense, salvation, right, for safety. Paul, as a capital A apostle, right, one who's been commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus, stood in the line of God's prophets as a spiritual watchman. It was their job to sound the alarm, to point people to salvation. They knew that God was coming to judge sin. And it was on them to make sure that people knew that. And they couldn't control the response of the people, but it was their responsibility to warn them nonetheless. These were also Paul's countrymen, right? So it's not just a sense of responsibility and obligation here, although there was that certainly. These were Paul's people. This was the nation that God had chosen to be his own possession, Paul's brothers. Paul said in Romans 9, 1 through 3, that their unbelief caused him anguish in his heart and that he would have willingly cut himself off from receiving salvation himself if it meant that Israel would turn to the Lord and repent. And perhaps most most deep of all, what really kind of undergirds both of that, that responsibility and the love for other people, was that Paul was compelled by the love of Jesus that pursued and subdued his stubborn and resistant heart. Paul had experienced the love of Jesus coming after him. Paul knew what it was like to be lost and dead in sin, resisting the call of Christ. And Jesus came and overtook him on the road to Damascus. And that's why Paul kept going back to the synagogue week after week after week, knowing this is going to bring persecution on me. This is going to bring frustration on me. This is going to bring disappointment into my life. And he kept going back because of a responsibility he had, a love for other people, And most deeply, the fact that he knew Jesus had loved him enough to pursue him and take on great cost to himself. So Paul was willing to do the same. Now, we are not apostles. But I do wonder if we are compelled like Paul. Do we have a sense of responsibility to share the gospel? Are we driven by love for those around us that are perishing? 
Have we come to a place of seeing Christ's love pursue and subdue our stubborn hearts? Charles Spurgeon pleaded with his congregation and said this, Oh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay and not madly to destroy themselves. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. If we take hold of the Great Commission like Paul, that will be our heart. We will have a sense of responsibility to the lost around us. We will have a deep love for the lost around us. And it will be the love of Christ that compels us to go. John Piper said in one of his sermons that if we make this mission our own, which, by the way, Jesus has actually already done that, right? Jesus has made this mission ours at the Great Commission in Matthew 28. If we embrace this call, not just to go and evangelize, but to make disciples of all the nations, beginning right here with our families and into the world around us from there, John Piper said, your life will be more difficult. The cost will be high. But the reward will be unfathomable. If we take hold of the Great Commission like Paul, we will need community just like he did. We will encounter seasons that are difficult, seasons of despair, and it's in those moments we will need the church. So Paul continued to go week after week, reasoning with the Jews in the synagogue, and they continued to resist, so he went to the Gentiles. So notice that God closed one door of ministry for Paul, and he didn't get irritated and go home. Instead, he did what he's done all throughout the book of Acts, right? He pivoted and went through another door. And immediately that decision is vindicated when several households come to faith and get baptized. We see in verse 7, Titus Justice, and in verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, and their households become believers and get baptized. And then we see God further encourage Paul in the mission with nothing less than himself. If you look in verse 9, it says, And the Lord. And by the way, that word, that, that word for Lord there is talking about Jesus. Jesus comes to Paul in a vision, and he says, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city. Who are my people. See, although Paul has already been encouraged by God with community and with the baptism of two families, so he's seen some fruit from his labor. In verse 9, God gives Paul the unshakable encouragement, the only promise of comfort that will never fail, and it's himself, his sovereignty. This is our third point. See, in verse 9, Paul receives a vision of the Lord Jesus. And Jesus knew exactly what was going on in Paul's heart. And so he tells him, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and preaching. And he gives him three reasons why he can have peace and push forward with the mission. They served encouragement, served as encouragement for him, and they do the same for us. First, Jesus tells Paul, I will be with you. See, when we're faced with setbacks and suffering, difficult circumstances we default to thinking that God is distant from us. 
Paul undoubtedly felt this way at times, and so Jesus draws near and tells him that nothing could be farther from the truth. Friends, we need to be reminded that our circumstances and our feelings are not the gauge we use to judge God's nearness to and care for us. The Word of God is. In it, God tells us clearly that He will never leave us. We, we will never be cast out, pushed aside, or abandoned. Even when our feelings are to the contrary, God remains near. This is crucial for us to know if we are going to live a life on mission as Paul did. second thing Jesus promises to Paul is he promises protection. He tells Paul that no one will attack to harm him. And in fact, we actually see in verses 12 through 17 here at the end of our section that the tool God uses to protect Paul in his time in Corinth is the government. Now, we know better than to presume on God's protection via the government or any other means all the time. We know if you look back at Paul's life that this was not always the case. God did not always use the government to protect Paul. God did not always provide relief from suffering and persecution for Paul. Because it was actually during those times of suffering and trial that he grew and refined Paul. And he does the same for us. Friends, he will not keep all suffering out of our lives. But he does give us the incredible promise that not only will he be with us, he promises that nothing will ever happen to his people without his consent. Our catechism question says it well that God ordains everything that comes to pass. We will never face one trial that God did not lovingly ordain. And we can rest in the fact that God will never allow anything to come near to us that is not for our good and for his glory. We don't serve a God that is constantly reacting to our circumstances. He authors them. And just like Kevin said earlier, that would be a truly terrifying thing if we didn't know the heart of God for his people. But we know that God loves us. And that he's always going to do what's very best for us. And sometimes that will mean allowing suffering into our lives. In this case, God knew that what Paul needed was rest. And he gave it to him. The last thing that Jesus promises Paul and promises us is that he will be at work. He says in verse 10, I have many in this city that are my people. Now, Paul had just arrived in Corinth. How in the world could there be many in the city that are Paul's people? What Jesus is saying here is that there are many Corinthians that he is going to call out of a life of sexual immorality and idolatry and indulgence and materialism. He is going to draw them to himself and he's going to use Paul's preaching to do it. This again echoes what Jesus said in John 6.44 that no man comes to him unless the Father who sent him draws them to Jesus. It's the image of a fishnet. And then he tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that the way God goes out into the world drawing people to himself and building his church is by his spirit. And Jesus says that his spirit is like the wind. You don't really know where it's coming from or where it's going next. The spirit just moves according to the counsel of God's will opening the eyes of the lost to see their need for Jesus. Folks, this is an encouragement from Jesus that we can take to the bank, that God is going to build his church. He is going to draw people to himself. None that the Father gave into Jesus' hand will be lost. His people will be saved, and his word will not return 
void. Jesus comes to Paul and says, I know things may look really bleak on the surface, but just know that I'm working behind the scenes in ways that you can't even imagine. So stay. Be faithful. Keep doing the work. And I'm going to work through your meager efforts. If we're going to live a life on mission, if we're going to take hold of the Great Commission and make much of Jesus and make him known in our homes and in the world around us, we need these encouragements from Jesus. So what do we do with all this? Three questions that I would ask you to help apply this, and we'll close here. The first question that we always want to ask at the end of any service is, friend, do you know Jesus? Have you ever experienced the love of God pursuing and subduing your stubborn heart? It may be that he is speaking to you through trials that have entered into your life, circumstances that are out of your control, questions that you have that you just can't seem to shake. Friend, it could be that Jesus is actually speaking to you through those things to draw you near to himself. And if that's you, then I want to invite you to stay after the service and talk to our pastor about that. Do you know Jesus? That's the first question. Second, if you would say that you do, are you living to make much of Jesus and make him known? And one of the easiest ways that we can sort of assess this in our own life is to actually look at our interactions with the local church. You can ask this question another way. Am I living a life that is so intentional about making much of Jesus that it makes me desperate for the community of the local church? If we treat the Great Commission and the call for us to go and share the gospel and make disciples as being sort of a secondary thing, if it's secondary to my hobbies, if it's secondary to my family, if it's secondary to my job, then the church will also be secondary. It will seem of little importance to you. But I want to encourage you in this, okay? The local church provides something for you that no celebrity pastor no deer stand, no family vacation can ever provide to you. And it is a group of people who have vowed to you and to one another that they will be here and encourage and support you as we carry this mission of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Nothing else provides that to you. And if you are living a life to make much of Jesus and to make him known, you will need the church. You'll want the church and you will need the church. So ask yourself that question. May we be a people that are compelled by love to make Jesus known. May we seek to encourage others in our congregation as they do the same. And then third, as you share the gospel with your kids and your coworkers, your family, who are you counting on to do the work? See, a lot of times one of the, one of the things that we really struggle with when we think about sharing the gospel with someone or making disciples, right? Taking a, a believer who's maybe not quite as mature in the faith as we are and we want to help them grow. One of the things that really hinders us from doing that is that we feel inadequate, right? Uh, we're, we're worried that there's going to be a question that we don't have the answer to. We're going to worry that we don't say it very well or that we're not very impressive in those moments. And I just want to encourage you that has the Apostle Paul built a church in Corinth not by his own efforts, but by being dependent on God. He described himself as being weak and trembling. So good news, if the idea of sharing the gospel makes you weak at the knees and shake a little bit, that's okay. God's used to using people like that. In fact, I would say those are the primary people that he uses to further the mission, not the people who think they've got it on their own. 
So who are you counting on? We cannot control the response we get, but thankfully we serve a God who is sovereign. He's near to us. He governs all things according to the counsel of his will, and he draws people to himself. Even when our gospel presentation isn't as, uh, you know, isn't as great as we want it to be, even when our effort isn't where we think it ought to be, God is always at work. So friends, as we live a life taking this great call, as we seem to have an insurmountable, daunting task in front of us, may you find encouragement in the Lord Jesus today, in his sovereignty and in the nearness of his presence and in his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we long to live lives that count for something that will last long after we are gone. And Father, we tend to look in all the wrong places for those things. We give ourselves to lesser things. But Father, you have given us a great commission, a great call to take the gospel out. For some, that may mean moving overseas. Probably for the most of us, it's going to mean sharing the gospel with our kids over and over and over again, even though they don't seem to be listening. It's going to mean sharing the gospel with family, with coworkers. It's going to mean supporting missionaries. Father, these things are going to cost us. They're going to make our lives more difficult. And Father, we would be in a state of total despair if we didn't have the promise that you are near to us. And that even when we can't see, Lord, you are always doing 10,000 things behind the, behind the scenes that we have no clue about. Jesus, would you encourage us as you encourage Paul? Would you help us to continue to be faithful, continue to share the gospel, and trust you with the results? Father, would you help us to give ourselves to the community of the local church? Lord, as we take on this mission, we're going to need the church. Father, would you help us to be looking for ways to encourage one another? Would you help us to set our pride aside and be willing to admit when we need encouragement? Father, help us to pray together. Help us to encourage one another. And Father, may you use the church right here at Grace Fellowship to encourage and empower its members so that we continue to take the gospel out and make much of you and make you known. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.